We are continuing our sermon series on apologetics. That means that we are going through um, parts of um, our life as Christians where there are sometimes hard questions and things that maybe um, cause us to question our faith. And today, we're focusing on one of those hard questions, one of those challenging places, and that is the relationship between the Bible and faith and science. Because those are two things that don't always sit so well together in our world. We think about them today in light of Scripture, and there are two Bible passages that I want to read. I want to start in the Psalms with Psalm 19. Psalm 19, I will read the first six verses of that psalm. Now, Psalm 19 is a two-part psalm. The first part of the psalm is a celebration of God's work in creation. The second part of the psalm is a celebration of the wonder of God's law. And I'm just going to read the first part. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them, yet their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the end of the world. In the heavens, God has pitched a tent for the sun. It's like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens, makes its circuit to the other, and nothing is deprived of its warmth. Now that word about nature, after that we will go to 2 Timothy 3, verses 14 through 17. This is a letter from Paul, and in this part of Paul's letter to his understudy Timothy, he talks to us, he talks to Timothy, about how important and authoritative the Bible is. Listen. But as for you, Timothy, continue in what you have learned and what you have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it, and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through Christ Jesus. All scripture is God-breathed, and it's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And then, um, I'd also like to read something from the Belgic Confession of the Belgian Confession is one of the confessional documents, one of the founding documents of the Reformed faith and of our denomination. It's very old. It was written over 450 years ago, and you get a sense of how old it is. It was written less than 50 years after Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the Wittenberg door. Okay, so it's been around a long time, and we've looked to it for a long time to answer some of the harder questions of faith. And so we're going to look to it today, and we're going to read Article 2. That should be printed, I hope, on your screen. And if it's not, just listen. We know God by two means. First, by the creation, preservation, and government of the universe. 
since that universe is before our eyes like a beautiful book in which all creatures, great and small, are as letters to make us ponder the invisible things of God. God's eternal power and divinity, as the Apostle Paul says in Romans 1 verse 20. All these things are enough to convict humans and to leave them without excuse. Second, God makes himself known to us more clearly by his holy and divine word. As much as we need in this life for God's glory and for our salvation. Thanks be to God. So if you were listening, you'll notice that the Belgic Confession has this really wonderful image that talks about the different ways in which God makes himself known to us. The image is books. It says God gives us two books by which he communicates himself to us. One of those books is is scripture. In the Bible, we hear about all the wonderful things God has done, how he sent his son to us to die for us, to be raised up again and to give us eternal hope. The Bible is one of the books through which God makes himself known. The second book is creation, nature. When we study nature, when we see the wonderful things God has made and the wonderful way that he made them, the Belgian Confession says that these creatures, these things out there, are as letters to make us ponder the invisible things of God, his eternal power, and his divinity. Now, it's good that we think of those two books, the world out there, Scripture, because when we think about science and faith, it's important to realize that science and faith specialize each in reading a different one of those books. Science, of course, focuses mostly on the book of creation, seeing how it's put together the wonderful way that it's made. Faith, theology, starts with and is founded on Scripture. This is our infallible rule for faith and life. So we're both looking at two different ways in which God communicates himself to us. Now you'll notice that in the Belgian Confession, it sounds like those two books are in perfect harmony. There's no particular conflict between them. There's no sense of conflict in that article. And that's very different from what we find in the world today because there's very much, I think we all know, a lot of conflict between faith and science in today's world. We did a parking lot service this morning, and after the service, I preached the sermon at that service. After the service, uh, Scott Stahauer came up to me, and he told me a story about Nancy, Nancy who, who left us less than a year ago. Nancy was a middle school Bible and science teacher, okay? <laughs> so the two books. And Scott told me that they used to go traveling and they'd go around the U.S. and they'd go to Europe. And when Nancy would introduce herself, she'd say, I I teach Bible and science. For a lot of people, that was like, what? How can you do that? How can you teach both of those things? They're just, those two things were like oil and water. They couldn't possibly see how there would be any confluence, any harmony between those two things. Now, how did that happen? How does this sense of conflict come in between Bible and science in the world? Well, there's blame on both sides, right? Anytime a relationship goes bad, there's usually blame on both sides. Some of the blame lies with some scientists. There is a whole stream of science 
and a whole lot of sort of aggressively anti-faith, atheistic scientists who want to poo-poo all forms of faith. Richard Dawkins, for example, you've heard me quote him several times in the sermon series. He's an aggressive atheist. I quoted this quote last week, if you remember it. This is what Dawkins said once in an interview. The resurrection of Jesus has a fundamental incompatibility with a sophisticated scientist. So you can't believe in the resurrection and be a scientist. You can't have faith and be a scientist, according to Dawkins. He says, faith is a sign of a weak mind. Another scientist, back in 2006, a woman named Carolyn Porco, who was an astronomer and a senior research scientist in California, she was at a big conference in which a lot of the leading scientists were there, um, people like Neil deGrasse Tyson and Sam Harris and Richard Dawkins was there. And she was presenting these beautiful pictures taken by the Cassini spacecraft of the rings of Saturn. So these phenomenal pictures of nature, they were absolutely gorgeous. And after everyone saw these pictures and oohed and awed at them, this is what she said. Let's teach our children from a very young age the story of the universe and its richness and its incredible beauty. It's already, she said, so much more glorious and awesome and comforting than anything offered by any scripture or by any version of God. Here, she wants to turn science into a religion. Get rid of all faith. Faith is for weak minds. Let's make science our religion. Now, I want to be clear, not all scientists think this way, right? There's lots of believing scientists, and even some unbelieving scientists are very tolerant of and respectful of faith. But there is a large contingent of um, very vocal and very aggressive atheistic scientists who, who make science and faith enemies. But the problem goes the other way, too. Many Christians are deeply suspicious of science. In late April... Christianity Today published an article online in which it uh, interviewed a scientist, a really committed Christian scientist, a guy named Cy Gart. And in that article, uh, Cy Gart was worried about Christian suspicion of science. And he lamented the fact that as he observed it, often when, when Christians hear something where, uh, like a phrase where it started with, science says, and then some finding, that alone was cause enough for suspicion. Almost like the word science says meant that this was word from an enemy camp and you had to watch yourself. Now, why is that? Well, some of that suspicion comes from the fact that aggressive atheists like Richard Dawkins have said such mean things about faith. That makes us defensive. But some of it comes from history. Some of it comes from, in this country especially, things like um, the, the Scopes trial. Back in 1925, John Scopes, science teacher in a public school in Tennessee, was arrested and prosecuted for teaching evolution in a public school. And it was a very famous case. It made national headlines. It was in all the papers. It was, you know, it, it was news everywhere. Everyone knew about the Scopes trial, right? Okay, and, and Clarence Darrow, famous lawyer, uh, defended John Scopes and uh, William Jennings Bryan, a famous orator and three-time presidential candidate, defended the state of Tennessee. And it was fireworks, and it set up this very public conflict. 
right? It set up this story of how faith and science were coming at each other, and that's helped feed the narrative that these two things are enemies to the point that sometimes when Christian parents send their kids off to college, they say, watch what they say to you in science class. What should we say about these things? These two great books that God has given us, can they coexist? Of course they can. And I would argue that they both need each other. And to see why and to see how, we first need to understand the, exactly the way each of these two books communicates and what they intend to say. So let's start with the book of nature. I read one Bible passage. I'm going to cite two Bible passages that show where the Belgian Confession gets this idea that creation is a book that reveals God to us. Psalm 19, verse 1 through 6 clearly does that, right? The heavens are telling the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Creation speaks of God. The great dome of the heavens, shining with stars, speaks of God. The tiny intricacy, the translucent beauty of a little baby's fingernails, a newborn's fingernails, those beautiful little translucent things, they speak of the goodness of the creator God. Creation speaks, it is a book. Another passage which undergirds the Belgic Confession's view is the one that, it was, uh, that was cited in the Confession itself, and that's Romans 1 verse 20. Romans 1 verse 20 says this, Since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what he has made. Okay, so the things God has made show his eternal power and his divine nature. Revealed in creation. It's a book. Okay, those two passages show why we think creation is a book. But what they also do is show the limits of what the book of creation can teach us. The book of creation shows us God's eternal power and his glory. His invisible things, okay? You can't get the Holy Trinity by studying creation. You can't get the fact that God became incarnate of the Virgin Mary in Jesus and Jesus died for us and was raised for us through the book of nature. You can't get God's law. You won't get the Ten Commandments by observing nature. You, you, you won't get what God's justice is and what God's love is and the path, the moral path that human beings are supposed to walk. That's not stuff that creation will teach you. Here's the way to think of it. The book of creation can show you the glory but it can't teach you the story. Shows you the glory, can't teach you the story. So now let's apply that to science. Science is really good at what science specializes in is looking at creation and answering questions like how, how does it work, and what, what is it made of? That's what science does. How and what, those are the questions of science. What science does not do well, what science can't tell you is why and what does it mean. So science can look at 
your body and tell you what a wonderful thing it is and how it's wonderfully put together, but it can't tell you what you are supposed to do with this body in this life that God has given you. The meaning of life in this body. Science can look at your neighbor's body and tell you how your neighbor is put together, but science can't tell you why you should love your neighbor and what that love would look like. Science can show you the glory, but it can't tell you the story and it can't tell you the shape of the moral life. And here's where science uh, goes wrong these days a lot of the time. Science is so powerful, right? Science has solved so many mysteries. Science has given us so many wonderful inventions and so many wonderful things. Sometimes we think like, wow, scientists can answer any question. And sometimes scientists set it up as if they are the only reliable source of truth. Reason and science are the only things we can rely on to give us truth in this world sometimes. They say that's like Carolyn Porco who wants to turn science into a religion. That's not science. That's scientism. That's science turning into a religion. Christians can love and support science as a discipline 100%, but when science wants to make itself the only source of truth, that's where we push back and say, no, you've gone too far. So that's the domain of science, that one book. Now let's look at the domain of the other book, the book of Scripture. We read 2 Timothy 3, and that's one of the greatest passages for showing us the authority of Scripture, how the Bible isn't just a regular old book. It's inspired by the Holy Spirit. It's the very Word of God. We listen to that book, and God speaks to us, right? It's an infallible rule for faith and life. And this book is so important to us. It's the center of my sermons every week. We listen to it when we come together every week. And for many of us, it's the center of our, our, our devotional life too, right? We turn to that book to feed our soul. We need this book. So important. But now, if you read 2 Timothy 3 carefully, 2 Timothy 3 itself limits the scope of the Bible's intention. The, 2 Timothy 3 limits what it says the Bible intends to teach. So for example, verse 15. The Holy Scriptures are able to make us wise for salvation in Jesus Christ. The Bible teaches the way of salvation in Jesus Christ and how Jesus saved us. Incredibly important. Verse 16. Scripture is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. That's the moral life, right? Verse 15 is for salvation in Jesus Christ. Verse 16 is the moral life, how we should live in this world and correcting us and keeping us on the path. That's absolutely central stuff, but I hope you hear that, that, that there are certain things that the Bible does not intend to teach or even try to teach. For example, the Bible doesn't teach us how to do plumbing. The Bible doesn't teach us how to do finished carpentry. The Bible does not teach you how the human immune system works or even that there is such a thing as a human immune system. The Bible does not teach us organic chemistry. It's not its intention. It's not trying to do that. It's trying to teach you the way of salvation in Jesus and the shape of the moral life and how we live in this world and the story of God. Intention matters. Tim Keller writes that if you're a person who respects the authority of Scripture, and we do, Part of respecting the authority of Scripture is listening to what every Bible passage intends 
to teach. So for example, if in Psalm 18, it says, God is my rock, we understand that as a piece of poetry, that, 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 that the psalmist does not intend to teach us science. He's not saying scientifically that the creator is made of cold stone. It's not a scientific statement. It's a theological statement. God is steady. He is strong. You can rely on him through anything. That principle of intention is the same thing that we should bring to Genesis 1 and 2 in the creation story. What is the author's intention? What is God's intention in Genesis 1? Is he trying to teach us science? Here is like a videotape account of how the world was put together, like exactly like this. Or is his purpose theological? Is he trying to teach us who God is, who we are, and where we belong in his world? And what is our relationship to him? Now, obviously, Christians have different answers to that question. There are some people who say, the Bible's trying to teach you science here. Six 24-hour days. And if you don't believe that it was six 24-hour days, you're, you're threatening the whole authority of all of Scripture. The Bible's absolutely trying to teach you science there. There's a lot of other Christians, and, and I'll be honest, this is the camp that I'm in, says, no, I, I think the Bible's trying to teach us more theology teaches faith, teaches who God is, who we are, and what our proper relationship to him is. There are good and beautiful Christians in this world who think that we have to take Genesis 1 as scientifically literal and that any talk of evolution is completely wrong. There are good and beautiful Christians in this world and in this church who say, no, I'm not sure that the days are literally 24-hour days and I think that the world is probably old. And I think that one of the things that God used to make this beautiful world completely under his control was evolution. There is room within Scripture to be an honest interpreter of Scripture and to hold either of these views. And we need to make room for each other and not kill each other about these differences. Faith and science can coexist. Let me finish with three quick things, very quick things, that remind us of, of some of the attitudes we should bring as we think about faith and science together. First, let us remember that we do science and we do faith as broken children. We do not see all the answers. We see through a glass darkly. So we misinterpret Scripture sometimes. We read Scripture wrong. We look at the data of science sometimes and misinterpret that. We get science wrong. So let's recognize that, that, that we're imperfect, and so if someone has a very different interpretation than us, let's give room, understanding that we won't get the final answers until Jesus returns. And that means, what flows out of that, second thing, let's learn to live with the tensions. Here's what sometimes happens. We hear something that science says, some truth that scientists say, and then we read scripture and we find some scriptural truth and we say, that sounds good. And we say, that sounds good. Then we try to fit them together. They don't fit together very well. And what our inclination is, because we are humans and we like to be certain, we like to have the answers, we don't like loose ends, we chuck one of the books and we hold on to one of the truths and get rid of the other one. 
Let's not do that too quickly. Again, recognizing that we're fallen people, let's hold two truths in tension, understanding that we don't see all things clearly and understanding that it's not until Jesus returns that we'll understand exactly how the books fit together and we will understand on that day. And finally, my last point, let's acknowledge that faith and science need each other in this world. We are better and deeper Christians when we read both books deeply. Earlier in this sermon, I mentioned Cy Gart. Cy was that, um, that Christian scientist who was a little worried that sometimes Christians were a little too uh, nervous about science. Used to be the other way around for, science, for Cy. He was a scientist who was suspicious and nervous about faith. Cy grew up in an aggressively unbelieving home. Okay, so he was taught that faith was bad. Faith was a sign of a weak mind. You should avoid Christianity and any form of belief and just listen to science, a sort of scientific religion, scientism. And so that's what he pursued. He became a PhD biochemist science and he loved science and it spurred his curiosity, got really into it. But that curiosity that science built in him also caused him to ask new and deeper questions. Questions like, and now I'm quoting him, where did the universe come from? How did life begin? What does it mean to be a human being? And what's the source of our creativity, art, poetry, music? Perhaps, he thought, science can't teach us everything. And then a friend brought him to church, and you know what? It wasn't so bad. People were nice. It wasn't all condemnation and judgment. There was love and, and people trying to find their way. He read the Gospels. They were pretty good too. He liked them. And then one day, he was driving down the road in his car and he was just flipping through uh, channels on the radio uh, when a Christian preacher came on, one of the Christian preacher channels. And he didn't really listen to what the preacher was saying, but he listened to the cadence of voice and he said to himself, huh, I wonder what it would be like to preach. If I were writing a sermon, what would, I, what would I preach? And he started to imagine, he thought, you know, I'd probably start with science and this beautiful world and how God made so many things so beautifully. And as he was thinking about this, suddenly something happened. He felt this chill down his back and he started to have something like a vision where he actually pictured himself preaching. He had to pull over to the side of the road because the vision was so strong. And he had pictured himself standing in front of a congregation passionately telling him about Jesus. I talked about knowing that Jesus loves me. With a voice full of passionate emotion, I assured the crowd that whatever their sins might be, they were no worse than my own. And that because of Christ's sacrifice on the cross, we could all be saved. So I had to pull over to the side of the road and tears were running down his face because he knew the Holy Spirit was changing him. Since that day, Sai has been a man with his nose in two books. He is buried both in the book of creation and in the book of scripture. He's learning what they teach, and he knows himself as a child of Jesus Christ, his Lord. He sees the glory. He knows the story.
Thanks be to God for all the ways in which he reveals himself to his people. Amen. Let us pray. Thank you, Lord, for revealing yourself to us in your book, showing us the face of Jesus and the great salvation we have in him. Thank you, too, for the beauty of creation. Lord, even sometimes when we have our head down and we're thinking about other things, your voice breaks through to us and the beauty is all around us and we remember that we belong to you. Lord, make us joyful and hopeful people as we read these books and go out in your world. Amen.